I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13. We're going to consider together today verses 18 through 21 in a message entitled Characteristics of the Kingdom of God. Luke chapter 13 verses 18 through 21. The Kingdom of God is a central theme in the Bible and a very important part of the focus of the ministry of Jesus. It's a common thread that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find the language of both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus used the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven interchangeably. The kingdom of God is past in the sense that God has done much already to bring about his kingdom uh, through his son, specifically Jesus Christ, It is present in the current manifestation of God's power in the world, and it is future in the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. The theme of the kingdom of God appears several times in the gospel of Luke leading up to our focal passage for today. Luke tells us that the kingdom of God is good news. It is for the poor, those who are poor in spirit, and it requires a single-minded focus. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was both present in him and at work through him. And he came preaching the message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. I begin reading here in verse 18. Jesus is speaking. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Verse 20, again he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. The question is asked, what is the kingdom of God like? But before we can answer the question, what is the kingdom of God like? I think it's important for us to understand what is the kingdom of God. By way of definition, the kingdom of God is the overarching, eternal rule and reign of a sovereign God over all the universe. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is the overarching, eternal rule and reign of a sovereign God over all of the universe. Psalm 103 in verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. The kingdom of God is the spiritual rule of God in our hearts and our lives, in all of the hearts and the lives of those who have come to faith in Jesus. The kingdom of God is not limited by this world, nor is it ultimately of this world. That's what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God will be literally evidenced at the return and the reign and the rule of Jesus in the millennial reign. And then it will be ultimately consummated and eternally inhabited in God's presence in heaven. In our passage today, the kingdom of God is explained with parables. A parable is something that is literally 
uh, cast aside something else in order to make a comparison. A parable, as commonly understood, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Parables reveal the truth to those who want to know it, and then they also conceal the truth from those who do not want to know it or who are indifferent to the teaching of it. Now, this first parable compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the garden. And we learn the first characteristic of the kingdom of God from this comparison, and that is the kingdom of God had a small beginning. It had a small beginning. Now, the man in the parable took seed, and he threw it into his own garden. We're told that he used a mustard seed. The mustard seed appears here in this parable several times. We find it also in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31 and 32, where Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown... It is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The seed of the black mustard plant, which is the species that is found in modern-day Israel, is about one millimeter in length. It's a tiny seed. Now, obviously, today we know that there are many seeds that are even smaller I'm told that the species of the jewel orchid measures only half of what a mustard seed would. But the point is not that Jesus is using this illustration to teach a scientific lesson. Instead, he's using it to teach a spiritual lesson. The purpose of the parable of the mustard seed is to teach a spiritual concept using a common example. Like in the parable of the sower, the seed represents the Word of God. And central to the Word of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The parable assumes that the man had a garden of his own. And in that garden, he wanted to reap a crop. So he goes and he plants a seed. Now, if you go and buy a package of seeds, it will tell you on the back of that package how long germination is going to take. It's also going to tell you how long it's going to be before you get a yield. So, for example, depending on the variety and the weather and the conditions, corn is going to take somewhere between 60 and 100 days, depending. A tomato plant is going to take maybe six to eight weeks from sowing to the time you transplant it. It's going to take another 40 or 50 days, give or take, maybe 60 days from planting, depending on the growing conditions, until uh, you get something. A squash is going to take a similar amount of time. You get the idea. But the point that I want to make here, what is critically important to understand, is if you want to yield a harvest, if you want to reap something, you've got to plant it. In other words, if you took those seed packages that you got, and you left them on the shelf, you can't expect that you're going to get any type of yield. In the same manner, the way to produce a spiritual crop is to sow the seed of the Word of God. It is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and then trust God with the results. 
This is one of the reasons that we're emphasizing who's your one as we are. Because we realize our own personal responsibility as disciples of Jesus to share with the people around us how God has changed our lives and how God can also change their lives. And then we trust God with the results. Now the mustard seed, about the size of a grain of sand, was tiny. Under Jewish law, it was actually illegal to plant a mustard seed in a public garden. And the reason being that when it grew, it would grow large and overwhelm everything around it. In fact, it would grow into a plant, a tree-like plant that might be as much as 12 feet high, produce a lot of other seeds and put them off, and literally overtake everything that was around it. Now, I find it interesting here that there's no name given to the man who sowed the seed. Why are we not given a name? Well, ultimately, because this account is not about him. Just as the kingdom of God, the focus of it, is not about us. The power was not in him. The power was in the gospel. The power is not in us. The power is in the gospel. He sowed the seed and did his part in obedience And we sow the seeds and do our part in obedience to Christ. Something that started small could grow large. The kingdom of God had a small beginning. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission, it had originally begun with those few disciples that followed him. And then it expanded to the people who were listening on. And then when the Holy Spirit came uh, at Pentecost... It exponentially grew from there. So what starts small in terms of the kingdom of God does not stay small. After the mustard seed was planted, it grew, it became a tree, and the scripture says that the birds of the sky nested in its branches. We learn the second characteristic of the kingdom of God from this comparison. The kingdom of God grows extensively. While it had a small beginning, It grows extensively. Now, after the man sowed the seed in the garden, it grew and it became a tree. At first, what had seemed like a very small and powerless seed, just a speck in the man's hand, was going to grow into something great. What could it accomplish? Well, before long, it would be something that was tall enough that even the birds could nest in it. Now, it's interesting that in Jesus' day, Uh, The prevalent thinking was that the kingdom of God would arrive dramatically. Remember, they had been under oppressive rule from the government, and actually God's people had experienced a succession of oppressive rules from the government, and they were expecting a military deliverer of sorts. They were expecting a dramatic arrival of the Messiah. That's what they were looking for. The promise of the Messiah King was strong in prophecy from Genesis to Malachi. And Jesus announced in the good news that he was, in fact, the Messiah King who had come to set prisoners free, uh, to set the oppressed free. But Jesus taught that the kingdom would begin small, and then what began small would grow extensively. Now, if you plant a tree near the foundation of your house, it's going to ultimately disrupt the foundation. That's why you don't want to do that. Uh, You've also seen uh, concrete sidewalks and driveways that have been 
completely buckled up because of an errant seed that got under it and took root nearby? Or what about the sequoia trees that are some 300 feet tall and 30 feet in diameter? Those seeds are still small enough to hold in the palm of your hand. And when we sow the seed of the gospel, it might seem like it's something small and inconsequential. But when we do so, we believe that God is going to bring spiritual transformation about in the lives of the people who hear it. And if we want to reap a great harvest, we have to sow the seeds of the gospel. And the reason that the kingdom of God will grow extensively is because of the power of God that is at work in the gospel. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 says, This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now let's take just a few moments here and put this growth into perspective. Sometimes when we look at what's going on around us, we might get discouraged. We see much opposition to the Christian faith. It feels like we're going backwards and not much is happening at times. But yet worldwide, globally, God is growing his family. He's gathering people to himself, and his work is always advancing. It is estimated that the global Christian population in A.D. 150 was somewhere around 40,000 people. It surpassed 100,000 by 180 A.D., and by 200 A.D., it was at 218,000. And then it's estimated that by 250 A.D., that there were 1.17 million Christians. Now think about that. From A.D. 150 to A.D. 250, a hundred-year span, the number of Christians increased from 40,000 to 1.17 million. Ralph Winter of the U.S. Center for World Missions years ago uh, indicated that in 1430, the number of Bible-believing Christians proportionate to the world population was only about 1%. That number today has increased to around 10% of the world's population. Let's consider some specific current examples. In Iran, for example, before the revolution in the late 1970s, it's estimated that there were less than 500 Christians in the entire nation. And yet today, it's thought that there are more than 2 million believers, from 500 to 2 million. Now, obviously, there's a population of 83 million people in that nation, still a very small number proportionally, but yet the number of believers has grown exponentially. Or in China, nobody knows for sure how many Christians there are in China. Uh, persecution is on the rise. Uh, the work of the gospel there is very difficult from an outside perspective. But demographers estimate that more Christians are found worshiping in China on any given Sunday than in the United States. In fact, there could be as many as 100 to 120 million people in China who profess the name of Christ. You think that's not going to have an effect in the century to come? You think God's not going to use that to continue to expand his kingdom? Or on the continent of Africa, a century ago, 80% of Christians lived in North America and Europe. 
compared with just 40% of Christians who reside in North America and Europe today. While in the global West and in Europe, Christianity has declined, it has grown exponentially in Africa. Over the past 100 years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa to more than 500 million believers today. The global South is home to new centers of Christianity. It's estimated that by 2060, more than four out of 10 Christians in the world will call Sub-Saharan Africa home. A demographic review of 195 nations in the world show that there are 2.4 billion people who would be identified as Christians out of 7.5 billion people. And of these, around 700 million are evangelical Christians. Again, around that 10% number. Now, I'm reminded of what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 when Jesus said to Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. God is growing his family, and the kingdom of God grows extensively, and it cannot and will not be stopped. The second parable compares the kingdom of God to leaven. A woman took it and mixed it in 50 pounds of flour, and it was leavened. We learn the third characteristic of the kingdom of God from this comparison. And that is the kingdom of God permeates the whole world for good. Leaven or yeast has the effect of promoting fermentation. When put into bread dough, it causes the dough to rise. Uh, Someone who was baking bread in the first century would throw in a little piece of dough that had been left over from the previous batch. And when leaven was added to that new batch of bread, it would act like yeast and cause the bread to rise. And yes, it's certainly true that during the holy feast that the Israelites were instructed not to eat bread that contained leaven. Uh, Leaven is used many times in scripture as a symbol for sin or as a negative influence. But sometimes in the Bible, uh, leaven is not a symbol for sin, but rather it is a symbol for good. And I think that's the idea of how it's used here. The idea of the leaven parallels the meaning of the small mustard seed. So what Jesus is doing, in a sense, is going from the first parable to the second parable, and he's making a similar and parallel point. The woman's measures of flour were equal, according to what the Bible tells us here, to about 50 pounds, a 50-pound bag of flour. That's a large amount. And yet only a small amount of leaven was needed in order to permeate the large mass of dough. The smallness of the amount of leaven was not a problem, even though the amount of flour was large. And I would say to you that the small number of followers of Jesus at the outset was not a problem in regard to the worldwide spread of the gospel, because that kingdom was going to grow. It was going to grow exponentially, and in its exponential growth, it was going to spread throughout the whole world as a force for good. The growth of the kingdom is dependent on the power of God through the gospel. Or to state it another way, once the leaven is in the flour, it cannot be stopped. This parable teaches that the gospel will spread to all peoples, And God's purpose in Christ in the world will be accomplished 
It cannot be stopped. It will not be stopped. And as we think about this, we can consider some of the ways that Christianity has permeated the world for good. Understand, we think about uh, people in terms of lost and saved and hell and heaven, and certainly that's a central part of it because we want to be in right standing with God. We certainly want to live with God someday when our lives on this earth are over. But we also think about the good that is brought about because of the love of God for the world, both in common grace and in saving grace. In the area of human rights, although the movement has been hijacked by atheists and secularists and others who promote unbiblical ideas like the utter insanity uh, and the unbiblical ideas of the LGBTQ agenda, the concept of human rights and equality comes from biblical truth because we believe that people have been created in the image of God. And because they've been created in the image of God, uh, they are worthy of being treated with dignity. They're worthy of being treated with respect, no matter who they are. And we value them because God values them. And we want to see them reconciled with God. Or what about uh, women's rights and the way that women are viewed in the world? Well, in the ancient world, a wife was the property of her husband. But in every way, biblical faith has raised the understanding of entire cultures about the value and dignity and freedom and autonomy and purpose of women. It's Christians who understand just how significant uh, women really are and the value that women have in the sight of God. In the area of children, in the ancient world, infanticide was not only legal, it was also celebrated. It was the early Christian church that ultimately brought an end to infanticide as it was practiced. Today, the modern pro-life movement is largely Christian. It's noted that the Didache, dated from the late first century, actually contained instructions against abortion. And I would say to you that no right-thinking Christian who believes the Bible could support abortion because it is an all-out assault on the image of God in creation. And yet here we are. Who is it that's standing on the front lines? Who is it that still is speaking with a voice in culture saying life is valuable from its natural conception to its natural conclusion and everywhere in between? It's God's people who are standing. And we might be the last people standing, but we're going to stand firm as we do. In the area of marriage and family, Christianity presents what is God's best in terms of the family structure as an essential part of society and really as a foundational institution of society. And there is an assault on the family. There's an assault on what it even means to be a human being or what it even means to be a man or a woman or a father or a mother or to be in a family structure. Who is it that's trying to push back against that darkness? It's the Christians because we believe the Word of God and we believe that God loves and values people and wants them to flourish and to thrive. In the area of education, particularly uh, post-Protestant Reformation, uh, Christians have been leaders in education promoting of course, biblical literacy. Uh, the first law in America to promote education of the masses was passed by the Puritans because they thought that it was important. 122 out of 123 of the first colleges in colonial America 
were Christian institutions. And not in name only, but their charter spoke about things like the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. So if you want to see just how far we have digressed in many ways in our own nation, all you've got to do is look at a comparison of where those institutions were and where they have come to today. But yet there are still many believers that are standing firm and are saying there is such a thing as truth, there is such a thing as right and wrong, and we need to be a people who are bold in it. The Christian people who believe the Bible are the only ones who are holding the line. In fact, it might be the Christian people who believe the Bible who even understand that there is a line. And as a result of that, we're able to permeate the world for good and make a difference one life at a time. Or, and I could go on and on about this, but I'll just say uh, two more areas. Compassion and mercy. Uh, Jesus, of course, cared about the neediest and the lowliest in society. Did you know that 73% of all charitable giving today in the United States goes to organizations that are explicitly religious? There is approximately a $1.2 trillion socioeconomic value to the United States economy alone annually larger than the total economy of all but 14 entire nations in the world that all comes from people who believe in something that is bigger than themselves and are, and are giving toward that. I'd also ask you the question, who is it that is among the first to arrive in disaster situations? i tell you this, it's not the atheist, it's the Christians that's who's there. Did you know that two out of the top three relief organizations in the United States are Christian in the Salvation Army and the Southern Baptist disaster relief efforts? And the Red Cross is the other one in that grouping of three. And the Red Cross was started by a Christian businessman. So there is a profound impact of people who believe in Christ. And then even in government, and this is the last one I'll refer to, the basis of Western law and order itself has its roots in Judeo-Christian thought. The basis for liberty and freedom is supported by Christianity because we believe that people cannot be coerced to believe. They have to respond in faith as God works in their lives. And we believe in the free exchange of ideas in a society. Baptists, historically, have been strong proponents of religious liberty. And the reason that we're strong proponents of religious liberty is not because we believe that uh, people ought to follow in these other paths, but because we believe that truth, when it's on display and it's in the public arena and it's beside these other ideas, will stand strong and show itself to be true. And that's why we want to be proponents of that to give us the opportunity to freely share the gospel and to spread the truth about God. You see, Jesus transforms people's lives, and he also influences people's lives in the here and now for good. Leaven, in this parable, works quietly, even when it is unseen, and it brings about phenomenal change. The nature of the leaven is to grow and to change anything that it comes into contact with. And when we put our faith in Jesus, his grace grows in our hearts and it changes us from the inside out. And the gospel transforms lives as it impacts the culture around it. And Jesus also prepares us for the life to come in the presence of God. 
So I say to you today, church, be encouraged. Stand firm. Don't shrink back. Don't give in to the culture around you. Be the salt and light that God has called you to be. Be faithful in sharing the gospel and believe that God will change lives. Even if things get darker from a societal perspective, God's church is moving forward. Lives are being changed, and his purpose will continue till it's fulfilled. The kingdom of God permeates the whole world for good. And I close with a very simple but very important question, and that is, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? It matters. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Or are you a citizen of the kingdom of darkness? Before all of the pandemic stuff set in, and we could do things like travel fairly easily internationally, a passport was very valuable and important. When you enter and you leave a country, they're going to ask you to show your passport or you're not going anywhere. A passport is tangible proof of your citizenship. So when we talk about citizenship, we're talking at a base level about our identity. Our citizenship plays a role in identifying who we are, what we value, what's important to us, and how we live. And as believers, we are citizens of God's kingdom. That shapes us because we are exiles and pilgrims in this world. But we are headed toward a heavenly city. And that heavenly city, the builder of that heavenly city, is God. He's the maker of it. And in the meantime, we want to be faithful to this kingdom life that he has called us to. And we want to represent Jesus Christ well. And that means that starts with faith in Christ Understand that he alone can save you. He alone can forgive you of your sins. He alone can give you the gift of everlasting life. And if you've not come to him in repentance and faith, that's your starting point. And then if you have and you're a citizen of this kingdom, you ought to be asking yourself, am I a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God? Is my life making a difference in my sphere of influence and the people that I come into contact with and the people that I can make a difference in, am I being all that God wants me to be where he's placed me? God's just simply calling us to be faithful and to trust him with the results. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray.